do it. Welcome back to Conversations of the Leaky Cauldron, episode five, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, chapters 18 through 23, a big uh, 120 or so, 115, 112, 100 something page reading. And back with me are Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Schentz. Welcome back, my esteemed colleagues. It's good to be back. Happy New Year, y'all. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Yeah. So uh, this was a great break, and I remember reading this and talking with you guys. I vaguely remember doing this. Um, I'm glad to be back with y'all. Yeah, and yeah. I'm glad to have yeah, and I'm glad to well, you, have you guys back have in. all. Yeah, go on. Um, I was just gonna say you guys have all traveled, right? Um, oh, Wes went further than the rest of us. Um, how was it? Did you have a good time on your trips? Oh yeah. I just did no reading, you know, um, that was the weirdest part probably. And mm. it's, it's really like relaxing. And then it's sort of like, I feel like I'm missing something after a while. Um, so it's, it's like such a integral part of who I am. I think I didn't realize. Um, so having like a break from it from a little bit, has really reminded me of that. And just like how, how awesome it is when the weather is cold and, you know, gloomy out like it is here in, in the Northwest right now, just like sitting down and just reading a book, you know, that's such a simple pleasure. Um, something that I think is just one of my favorite things. So I don't know, how was your break? Mine was good. I, for the first time in like 15 years, I didn't have to travel to be with my family at the holidays. And so that was actually a real treat because it was a lot of reading and relaxing. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't feel pressed to spend time with, uh, you know, each and every one, you know, like, like the characters in Harry Potter, it was an unusual Christmas. Um, this year because I was so, I'm so used to my Christmas being kind of regimented and you know um, like a little always a little too short um, from my perspective so it was good that is, that is interesting how it how it, your break shifts when you don't have to travel home and I I didn't travel home to Nashville this time around but rather um my girlfriend and I had guests from Nashville that came by and it, it just makes me think of sort of just mixing what you said with or conjoining what you say to what Wes said about traveling and being on break and sort of the action patterns and routine of life and how the routine at first is nice to get away from, but sort of calls you back to it. It is interesting the things we choose to do on break. Because, um, I, and I do think it tells you something about you and perhaps which house you should be in. Because what, one thing I did is I, I outlined my uh, six books of Milton for lecture uh, for several reasons. One, personal edification. Two, to really earn that uh, expert classification when it comes to those five major epics which I teach. And, uh, but three, also because I always use breaks as times to hone my skills in, in whatever craft I'm currently pursuing. So I always try to get fitter and I always try to do more reading than usual. It's like, I like to work harder since I can work purely for myself. Um, 
and for the benefit of those people who I'm closest to, who I'm like buying presents for and running around for. And so it, it's interesting to what extent you become less or and or more yourself during a break. And so we get to see mm-hmm. a lot of that with mm-hmm. Harry, Ron, and Hermione this time around, right? Um, Hermione likes the library still quite a bit. But Ron and Harry <laughs> have exam. And I, just to make sure I got, I have the continuity of the story right. The exams are coming at the end of break for them. Are I know that even though break had started, exams they still had ahead of them. So did they have them before Christmas? Do they have them after Christmas? It was my understanding that they should have been studying really hard for finals, but it was too fun during holidays. And there's too much excitement to do that, so they weren't. But the finals are still coming. Is that correct? I think so. I don't know what. I well, I thought so, but you know, Harry's exempted from the finals. It's more like he should be figuring out his next um, hint, you know, for the next task. Right. And uh, the rest of them, I mean, I think they just have one big finals at the end of each school year, and you know. That's I thought they had an end. I thought they had an end of term sort of exam that was mentioned because there was there was mention of the fact that all the classes stayed rigorous except for I think what was it Flitwick's where he had them doing funny charms, but that Moody and Snape were still hard on them. But it, it might be that I guess they have the owls soon or something like that. But I was under that impression. But you're right about Harry, um, not having to worry about that. But that's also funny too about when you're on vacation that you're never fully on vacation, that what Harry, like Ron, has lingering in the back of his head is that there is something he should be doing. And I wanted to ask you, too, whether you ever had that feeling during uh, during break that even, and, you know, even from school, did you have, like, a research paper that you were supposed to be doing, though you knew you wouldn't, but it kind of lingered and was held over your head? Do you think that's what is happening here with Harry having this big task and this small reprieve from, but it's not a real reprieve, but he's making it a reprieve, but he could be working on it. I mean, of course, I, especially as a teacher, um, I am always, I mean, there's always grading to do. And um, especially over the holidays, I, I collected an essay right before Christmas and I graded a lot of them. I didn't grade all of them and I should have, but, it does sort of hover like a specter um, over your mind. That being said, I think one thing that's great about the holidays is I can forget about it. I can, um, like you said, kind of immerse myself in the things that really make me feel like the best version of myself um, because I have time. And I mean, I, I think what they have, what most of them have, it, so it seems at the start of chapter 23 is they just have a lot of homework that they were assigned around Christmas time. And, um, you know, I certainly often have grading that hangs over my mental landscape and, um, I do my best to avoid it. And I claim that is work-life balance, even though the reality is it's just not work-life balance. (laughs) That's, that's a misnomer. I'm <laughs> just avoiding it. Um, yeah. Especially around the, the holidays though, that that's like, that's part of the point, right? Like you sort of get to have the world 
be a little topsy turvy for a little bit, and that's that's like mm, mm-hmm. too, right? And I don't know. It's everything needs a balance, including like being a little out of balance. Is how I kind of think about it. And Ooh. this this portion of the book um, made me feel like a lot of anxiety, like a lot of uh, nerves, both with the task, you know, facing the dragon. Um, just like waiting around in the tent before that happened. I was like, oh man, this is stressful. And then mm-hmm. especially with the Yule Ball, like, oh man, what intense, like, uh, uh, discomfort, like remembering what it was like to be at a dance and like feel expectations and like, you know, have to ask people out or, or dance or whatever, like all of that stuff was so, so stressful. And it, uh, I think it captures it really effectively there um, by like comparing it to a dragon fight. Like this is worse. <laughs> right. The next dragon to face the other dragon of nature, the other major hey, thing, the force hey, of selection. Take it, take it easy. Uh, we're not the dragons. All right. Uh, oh well, you know, in, in, that, <laughs> in that you are the holders of nature and the principal selectors of the next generation. That in in that way, the dragon. But the okay, dragon, okay. But but I do think the dragon is a symbol of it's a it is a good and a bad symbol in that it is a symbol of wisdom. Um, and so oh, it, well, it is. It is a uh, you know there, there is like that, hands. like the the protecting the egg thing. And that the egg has a message, but it's hard to, you know, um, there is kind of like an overtone now that you guys draw that comparison. <laughs> no, that I'm is just interesting. About what, I, what I know will come, and like, uh, like Harry having to like disrobe to understand the egg seems ah. awfully sexual. <laughs> um, and it does, it does get that element from Myrtle, right? We haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. That's for sure there. Um, but, I was wondering if, it, Wes, you said that like the holidays are a time where kind of things get turned upside down. I mean, do you see any of that kind of alongside the anxiety that you were describing that like um, things are like topsy-turvy or thrown out of whack or out of balance? Um, I think that that's interesting based on what I, what I was seeing as well. Well, yeah, and one small way, or maybe not small way that you see this in the book, at least, is with, like, Harry, who's always, you know, a pretty strong student, like, natural ability-wise, and suddenly there's this mm. charm, the uh, Accio, right, like, bringing things to him. It just doesn't work. Like, he can't get it, and he's, like, just very flustered by that. Um, I think I could really relate to that, because, you know, in school, I generally didn't have to work too hard at a lot of things but then you come to a certain point you know like call it fourth year like in the books here or or, you know whatever stage in school like eventually you come to a point where you do actually have to kind of study Um, for me a lot of that was foreign languages and that was something that I really liked like one of my favorite things of all but but I really did have to you know sit down and work at it a lot more than I did with with other subjects Um, and I really liked the way that Harry is shown you know um, staying up all night, not for a test, not exactly for, you know, the normal sort of written test, but for this performance that he has to do in front of everyone, like the whole school is watching, all three schools are watching, he has got to get this thing figured out, um, and he just does as much as he can, 
you know, and his, his friend is there, Hermione, helping him along the way. Um, I, I thought that was like a really affirming kind of example of like, okay, so you, you know, you're pretty good at stuff, but you still have got to put in some hard work, right? And like the habits that you have formed so far are not adequate to this. You've got to like stretch yourself. You've got to really go um, further and, and break some new ground with your, with your studies here. I, I think it's a pretty cool example uh, of all that sort of thing. Well, I like that for several reasons I think because, yep, just to jump in, be, just to jump in with that, uh, with, uh, just because this is the first time he's ever really had to perform with nobody who will support and take his back at the school. And he's, he, you know, even when he was facing, and I suppose, I guess at the end of three, he, he faced the Dementors by himself. Um, but that was sort of a supreme and incredible act on his part. Usually he had Lupin behind him. Right now, now he has to perform and he has to perform publicly. So that was an element missing last time. There was somebody there, Hermione, but not, but not, you know, not a bunch of other people. And so it just strikes me that as an educator, you know, at our school, we have a senior exhibition where the seniors have to perform in front of community members and, you know, a variety of people and they take it very seriously and they get very worked up and nervous about it because there seems to be nothing more humiliating than uh, not performing in front of you know strangers, in front of public members who are not your immediate family. And that um, A, Harry would have to face that, and B, that would be what would actually make him work hardest for it. I think that is sort of part of the key to the education. And I don't know if it's implemented correctly, but I think that is the idea behind project-based learning, that um, if you actually have to produce something that is then exists in the world that people can judge you tend to want to do the best possible thing we're so so self-conscious about what they'll say and that, that that's what brings the best out of harry here uh, actually working to learn this charm so we can face this dragon which is what uh, maybe public opinion or or something that hides the treasure i don't know maybe he has to look inside himself for something more in order to meet this threat I'm not sure, but I, I agree. And sorry, sorry to have uh, thrown that in there, Sarah, but I, I just couldn't help it. No, I know. I think that I think that's exactly what I was going to head towards is this idea that at, at our school, we call it the culture of performance, that like mm. all all content areas um, kind of abide by this pedagogical philosophy that, you know, you don't really know it until you can do it in front of other people. Right. Um, and, in, and in fact, that might be one of the more, if not the most um, preparatory way of assessing someone's knowledge or skills or combination thereof. And I would, you know, I say, I tell my students that a paper is a performance. It's just a performance for me. Um, but, um, you know, doing something, executing um, a combination of skills and uh, that brings to bear a, a variety of um, uh, knowledge areas in a timely fashion in, in public um, uh, or in front of some audience seems to be like a really useful skill. And I think one thing that's, that kind of also raises the stakes for him is that um, not only is it public in front of like not one school, but three, but it's also public in front of people who are kind of hoping that he fails. And, right. um, and that, you know, that's part of what throws him off in his learning is that he's, 
he, he, there is a passage, I think, in like the first or second chapter that we read for today where it says, you know, there had been a, a time in his second year when um, people thought he was the heir of Slytherin and they avoided him, but he always had his friends. And now not having Ron for a period of time, like you said, I think it made him find a lot more within. Like he had to do a lot more on his own. And of course he had, you know, he had Hermione and he had Professor Moody helping him. But um, I think the other, the other piece, two pieces of, of that time period in his, in the story that I think is, are interesting just because, you know, this is a time in his life, a real crucible where he's increasingly alone and increasingly threatened. Um, and it seems like lacking the um, the safety of friendships and, uh, you know, teachers who don't use terrible curses, as well as having like an increased level of danger in his life. Um, that's sort of, it, it shouldn't surprise us that that's when you see a little bit more um, stumbling, but also when you see a little bit more rising. Um, and I'm I'm particularly interested in why it is so easy for him to decide to tell Cedric about the dragon. Um, and like, it, it just, it sort of, it occurs to him that he should do it. And he kind of doesn't even really second guess that instinct. And I think that that's super interesting. Like that moral intuition is not something, he doesn't weigh all of the consequences that I remember, like to my knowledge at least. Um, or to my memory. And then I think the other thing that is a theme that I saw that I just wanted to throw out there all at once, and I know that this is a lot of me, but is this theme of like um, changing one's appearance. I think that's a really important part of performance is like um, trying to become like a, a more, a fuller version of yourself in front of other people. Um, you know, there's like, the canary creams that change your appearance. And then there's a discussion of a variety of different charms that change your appearance to varying degrees. Hagrid's changing his appearance and um, Hermione. Hermione, Hermione changes her appearance. And it, there's like these, there's these temporary and seemingly more permanent transformations. And then there's the cosmetic and maybe the, also the internal transformations. But I guess I was kind of surprised that Harry so easily gave Cedric the clue. Um, I, I, I don't know why that surprised me. And I don't, I don't know if it surprised you all, but he just, he did so without, without thought. It was just obvious that he should do so. And he went ahead and executed. Um, I have, that seems I quite have a, mature. Yeah, I, and in line with this character, I have a comment on that, but I also just quickly wanted to say, because you, you made me, think of this uh, is that what's interesting in this book is that there is this like a rising sexuality in it or this tension between uh, you know the, the sexes that like even with this ball showing up right and it is Minerva wisdom who is going uh, you know the goddess mm -hmm. of wisdom who is going to uh, uh, sort of initiate them into this dance and this dance is of course you know, uh, sort of a very sophisticated version of a mating dance, right? And um, because it's a man and a woman and they're supposed to, you know, get into rhythm with each other and to learn how to sort of engage with each other. And so you also find, 
with the increasing sort of carnal knowledge like that, and we see people in the bushes kissing and things like that, um, uh, mm -hmm. an increase in the knowledge of danger with Harry. And that just makes me think that um, this is sort of making the Miltonic sort of point about the garden that with increasing understanding of the world or, or through the understanding of carnal knowledge, which is also the understanding of the fact that one will die, one starts to understand just how dangerous the world is as well. So, mm. so with your greater wisdom comes greater understanding of the dangers of the world, the Timor Dei, the fear of God being the beginning of wisdom. It just, it's so interesting on the American cover in the left hand, just to add some funny Freudian bit to this, you have a, you have, you know, Harry with his wand, highly masculine image, and in his right hand, a, a golden womb-like dragon egg. Uh, which is a highly feminine image. And, you know, those seem to be the combination of the feminine and the masculine, sort of like a yin-yang image. And one is up and one is down, and there's a dragon sort of tail in front of it, which is actually a horn tail, which <laughs> uh, I do think supports this interpretation. That's cool. I, I like the, um, the kind of mixture of topics which are coming out here and the way that this seems to work yeah, it does, it does seem to have, a, have something to do with, with knowledge and Harry's, um, you know, insight or his character or whatever it is that, that inspires him to go and share this knowledge with the one person who, who's kind of in the dark about it at this point, with this, which is Cedric. Um, I think that the, the irony of this is um, raised a bit when you think about how Harry has been compared to Cedric before and found wanting, right? By uh, yes. by losing mm -hmm. that Quidditch match, right? And Cedric's dad is all, you know, very much um, reminding of us of that at the start of this book, uh, back at the and Quidditch World Cup. And then later, you know, a few chapters later when people, oh, when people are trying to get dates to the dance, well, um, Cedric has asked the girl that Harry wanted to ask but couldn't nerve himself up to do it, right? And And she had accepted already, right? So, so in this way, you know, that that makes this moment the more surprising in hindsight, maybe. Um, and Harry, uh, to the point where he doesn't want to take Cedric's advice in turn later about the egg, right? He doesn't want to um, exactly. use this hint that he's given. Um, he doesn't want to feel like he's in um, any way, you know, less uh, than, than Cedric at figuring something out. So. He wants to just, maintain that superiority. It's tough. Yeah, you just gave me an insight too, just uh, as a symbolic interpretation. It's precisely because Cedric is faster than Harry that he's beaten him both these times, right? He was faster on the broom, and though we could say uh, he just did, had a less traumatic thing that kept him from catching the the snitch, but you know, as the seeker, that's how it's interpreted. That you know, even even if it was Harry falling off and it not being his fault, it's still his fault. You know, he's still the seeker, uh, and he lost to Cedric. And also here with Cho, it looks like she would have wanted to go with Harry again had he done it in the proper time, maybe. But Cedric was faster, and it just makes me think of how the text will eventually end, which is when they finally catch up with each other, one has to disappear, which makes me think of. I've talked so much about Harry being sort of the ultimate ideal as a hero. And I think what you both are putting your finger on is that what's best about him isn't his intellect, but his sense of fairness and fair play. 
He seems to like that, though he doesn't want to give the benefit of the doubt to Cedric, which is funny. He doesn't even want to think correctly about what it is Cedric said. He, you know, he wants to deliberately misunderstand it. But it makes me think that Cedric is, in a way, the ideal of Harry, too. He's the one beyond him that, you know, he kind of has. And he's handsome and he's beloved by all the fans uh, at Hogwarts. And Cho wants to go to the dance with him. And he won that Quidditch match. And he's supposedly a very advanced magician at this time, or wizard, excuse me. Uh, don't mean to be rude. And, um, yeah. and he, has, he has a loving family um, that we met at the beginning. And wow, yeah. they seem, yeah, yeah. You know, right? Um, I just, I think it's weird that, you know, up until this point, I guess I haven't gotten out of Harry Potter himself as a character that fair play is important. Maybe because he seems to always be um, in a position to call something unfair, right? He's, he's the right. underdog or he's the one who's being hunted unfairly or, and whatnot. But like fair play is, uh, or caring about fairness and, you know, an even playing field, that's the quality of a Hufflepuff more than it is a quality of a Gryffindor, I think. Um, at least that's that's how I understood it. But I, um, I'm I'm still I, I think I'm still just kind of in awe of how maybe maybe it maybe it was that was his way of trying to com- to like compete with Cedric it, to say like all right you might be faster and better looking and smarter and taller and and you know in all the other ways um, uh, superlative compared to me but. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to, I know more than you and I'm going to let you know it. Um, maybe, maybe that was the only card he had in his, in his hand or something. It, it, but that's, that's even Cedric is kind of surprised that Harry tells him. Um, what I also think is interesting is that in the text, Harry does better than Cedric, um, which so I personally twice. didn't, I didn't remember, and I was surprised by. I didn't remember that either, especially because that, I don't think that's included in the movies. Um, uh uh-uh. But that, uh, right. that no, yeah. Cedric gets really injured um, in his in defeating the dragon. Yeah, and but, I think that supports your your point about him sort of reversing the roles a little bit, right? Like he goes kind of head on to, te- to challenge the dragon, which seems like a sort of Gryffindorish thing to do possibly. Whereas Harry um, does something a little more sort of nuanced or, you know, kind of conversational even, right. By, by um, convincing the dragon to get up off the, off the eggs and then sort of swooping in uh, once he's done that. Yeah. And what do you think of, what do you, what did y'all make of Sirius saying that he would use a conjunctivitis? charm uh does it do you think that relates at all to just multiple references back to him being on like a tropical island and using a conjunctivitis charm him being potentially like a representative of an alcoholic or so or just like an uncle who likes to drink but also that i i thought it was interesting how wise he was that he says and because the eyes are the weakest part of a dragon of course and just dropping that knowledge and just you know, it would be helpful to have his focus, right? He focuses in precisely on the weak spot 
of the dragon and that's incredible too so maybe he embodies those two different aspects of the the father or the the, the positive mat the positive and the negative masculine images that was a really interesting moment i think when um he's on the point of telling Harry his solution to the dragon, um, which turns out to be the one that Victor Crumb uses, right? Yes. Uh, and gets some points docked because the dragon stomps around and smashes some of the eggs. And, uh, and so Harry's solution ends up being a, a little bit more, you know, skillful actually. And, and the one that um, Sirius was suggesting is the one apparently that, uh, you know, Karkaroff must have suggested to, um, to his student, right? So, so it's again this kind of real interesting um, web of of intentions, of uh, strategies, of purposes at at work here. I, I think also that moment, you know, is so is so striking because um, Ron comes down and seems like he's on the point of of trying to make a reproachment there, you know, like kind of men fences, and Harry is so upset because, you know, it scared Sirius away. And he didn't get to hear what he was about to say, that he's in the worst possible mood for, for making, um, making up with Ron. <laughs> and it just makes everything so much worse. It's, it's rough, it's rough. Right, and so, Let's talk a little bit about the Yule Ball. One thing, or not only about the Yule Ball, but also about Hermione. So just to loop back to Hermione, a couple things that happened here. She gets asked to the dance by, um, uh, by Victor Crumb, one of the champions, and she gets done up very beautifully. Just before this, because, because of something bad that had been done to her, something good ends up happening. Malfoy curses her and makes her front teeth get larger and larger, which she's already self-conscious about, which you might see as a metaphor for uh, drawing attention to someone's flaw through insult and how consequently self-conscious they become of that. But then Madame Pomfrey is fixing her teeth and Hermione allows her teeth, which were at one time more like buck teeth, bigger teeth, um, bigger front teeth or protruding they're described as, uh, getting down to normal size and this has a real effect on her and then she does her hair up in a certain way and is done beautifully up and you see this transformation just like Odysseus who I just taught about today in book six of the Odyssey experiences an, a transformation when he goes from sort of guy with a leafy branch over him and the salt brine and other leaves on him to handsome middle-aged man in the presence of Nausicaa. And so with Hermione, we see, we see two things that I, I didn't expect, but uh, one is that she allows physical transformation happen, to happen to her in sort of a plastic surgery or dental sort of way, which she says she just won't tell her parents about. Um, I don't know how she's going to hide it though. And, um, but also that she, she gets such looks of disbelief from, I think it was Harry, I believe Harry's date, uh, one of the Patils, I can't remember whether it was, is it Parvati is her name? or And Padma is her sister? Yeah, Ravenclaw? yeah that's her name. Okay, good. And she just looks very unflatteringly at, uh, at Hermione, in a Hermi and I believe what's described as an unflatteringly shocked way. And, Hermi and uh, also Harry and Ron seem to see her differently, and especially Ron, who's in a terrible mood 
all night during the Yule Ball, apparently because of just how beautiful Hermione is and possibly also out of some major resentment at the quality of guy that she's there with, whom he loves. And so I just wanted to bring that, that situation up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that the other thing that she does is straighten her hair so that that the other physical quality of hers that um, uh, A, got her noticed by people, like that's something that, what's her name, Pansy in, um, in Slytherin House would sometimes make fun of her for. Um, her bushy hair. So, so yeah, so um, uh, she allows Ma Madame Pomfrey to change her teeth, but she herself fixes her hair. And I mean, on its own, like girls get dolled up for a dance. That's not like a huge deal. But um, I think up to this point, we would have expected Hermione to kind of be more like, no, like, through the patriarchy, like, I, I'm fine as I am, right? Like, um, because of how kind of, uh, you know, radical she is with SPEW or the House Elf Liberation Front, as it's now called. Um, but, but she, she engages in this frivolity um, and in like these traditional gender roles. And I, I also think it's interesting that she doesn't tell the, the boys who asked her, like she almost kind of, she knows that it will make her more impressive to them if they just like get surprised. Um, like she keeps it a secret, right? Which um, tells me either she's ashamed that she's going with Victor or she's uh, really proud and kind of wants it, wants the surprise to give her some kind of social credit. Um, and I, I don't know, I find that not out of character because it's Hermione and hard to say something's out of character if it actually happens to the character, but just a new dimension of her. Um, she seems to be. I don't know. She seems to be, she has depths undiscovered, just like we know from the gifts that she gives. That it's not, it's not simply that she's like being socialized in a certain way. I would say that different aspects of her being are manifesting. And she's becoming richer and fuller. And it's funny because the boys, they can't recognize this because she's their friend. And so what they see her as is their friend. And so when they see her as beautiful date to Victor Crumb, in fact, the, the line that Harry has given is, he didn't recognize that girl, or he didn't know who that girl was. And then the next page, it's, wait, that's Hermione. He sees her in a totally different way, in a different context, dressed in this manner. He's like, oh my goodness, my, my friend, who's just like my friend, is like actually this very beautiful young woman now. And Ron seems to be getting hit by that like a load of potatoes as well. I feel so bad for Ron here. Because he doesn't even realize, it seems like, what's happening to him, you know? Like, he really seems to genuinely think that he's upset that she's um, with Victor because Victor is from a different school, because he's, you know, the enemy or whatever. And he doesn't, like, he doesn't even catch a glimpse of the fact that he wanted to ask Hermione to the dance. Like, it really seems to be so, so, be like, beneath his radar or, or whatever at this point. Um, and I think it is for Harry too. Like I don't, I don't know that Harry is able to um, 
quite tell that that's what's going on either. Uh, even as he watches Cho dance with Cedric and feels, you know, the same thing, um, this kind of like non-directed, um, vague sense that he has like somehow completely missed the boat here um, at this great event where it's supposed to be like fun and everyone seems to be having fun and and he's not, you know, it's, it's rough. I, I think it's something that um, really, really is interesting to have kind of in the center of this, this big book. I think this is a point, Sarah, that you'd brought up a while ago, maybe about the structure, right, of these stories and how we're kind of approaching like the midpoint of the whole series. Um, what mm -hmm. would it be, you know, to have this sort of moment of kind of transformation like we're talking about and like realization um, be part of that, that turning point in the series. Um, how, how interesting that that is like connected with, you know, the overt appearance of Voldemort again <laughs> to, as, as like a force which, you know, you have to sort of name and, and reckon with finally after all these years. Um, it's, it's a weird, you know, and that's all mixed up with Christmas too and the weird sisters playing like fate, you know, sort of they're rocking out. I don't know. It's like, it's really weird, really interesting. Yeah. So that, that comment you made earlier, Alex, about like knowledge of the body and knowledge of evil kind of coexisting and happening in the same place just after the fall, I think is all the more, even more like clear to me how it connects to the Yule ball. I think, I think one thing that's different though, is that like, when Ron is angry, he's angry at the object of his affection, right? Like Harry is angry at the one who he thinks is taking his place with Cho. Like he's jealous, right? Whereas, whereas Ron's anger, like he never directs his anger at Victor. Maybe Ron is afraid he's going to get beat up, but Victor, I think is a kind of a scrawny guy, but like, I, I think, I think it's interesting, like, who they direct their anger at. Um, because I think it maybe reflects a little bit about where their anger actually belongs um, or what it, it actually is a reflection of. Like, one might be, like, a genuine sense of, of envy and one might be shame um, um, at being slow. I... Uh, <laughs> I did... I, I was really glad to see Ron come to his senses about Harry not putting his name in the goblet of fire. I'll be honest. And I like the fact that they were friends again, made me kind of happy, but this kind of behavior made me very mad at him. I don't know. Like, well, that, I know yeah. Ron, uh, Ron is a subject of, of contention between me and Wes, but this, that is so immature. I mean, it is like completely lacking in emotional quotient or, uh, EQ, right? Like, he he has no self knowledge, um, and I oh, it just it, it I I got angry in that scene. Well, and what but. what seems to be part of what's going on, especially in the Gryffindor common room when Harry walks in on their second scene together, is that it's almost as if what Ron is imploring from Hermione is that she have understood what it was that he wanted. And they sort of do embody these conventional roles in that on this issue, she is unwilling to go that extra mile. 
he has to go the extra mile in this particular one. He's the one that needs to step forward and ask her, and he needs to ask her uh, at the right time in accordance with who she is, you know? A champion asked her out, and much sooner than he did. And so that's what's gotta happen if he's gonna move forward in that way. And I, I do think it's very interesting, and I like that she takes a stand. She does give him that, that carrot, though, at the end, right? Next time, ask me sooner. That is, that is not a closed door by any means, young wrong. That seems like an open invitation. Mm -hmm. Even though I don't know how often balls happen, but it's, uh, you know, it's, she's essentially saying, yeah, I'll probably say yes if you do it right, but you must do it right. And it, it's, again, another instance of responsibility that these, these boys have to take in order, you know, to, in order to perform the role of man or gentleman or wizard. And just as in the dance, they have to, you know, take their role. So, so in order to get the person to go to the dance, they have to uh, enact the role appropriately. Hermione seems to be honoring this. Well, and I, I think what's interesting too is that like Hermione has a great time, right? And right. the two boys who don't, like you say, just to use that language, they don't perform their role. They don't have a good time. They don't even dance. It's a, I mean, aside from the opening dance where I guess Harry has to, they don't. Like, I think at some point there's um, a boy from uh, uh, Beau Baton or Beau Baton, whatever, the French school, who comes over and asks Parvati to dance and she's super eager to go um, and they make a date later. But like they don't actually rise to the occasion of playing the role of man in this scenario. They just like get dressed up and pretend. And I think maybe, maybe th that sort of ties back to something that I was thinking about as I was like reading and listening to these chapters was how much change is cosmetic. And like for Hermione, she has a great time. She goes on a nice date with a really popular boy. And yes, she undergoes some, some physical transformations, but she's also undergoing like a personal transformation by letting loose and having fun and standing up for herself. Um, not that she has a problem with that on her own, but um, you know, maybe relaxing a little of her extreme <laughs> principles um, along with relaxing her hair. I like she is experiencing authentic transformation. Um, whereas right. and, and Harry did Harry did too when he learned how to master a, su a summoning charm without the help and with the pressure of the of the um, of the task, right? Um, and so he was able to perform the perform the, the new role. And then and then the role that he performed became a part of him. And so he had to reach for the next role to perform. And because he didn't undergo some like genuine transformation, the performance falls flat. It, it feels fake and, and merely cosmetic or merely a, a costume. Right. Um, Precisely. I, I just, yeah. I think there's, yeah, there's so much transformation it, happening. And I, I think that that's a good way to connect it. And I think what you're nailing on the head, and this is, you know, the hardest union principle to understand 
what Jung says about marriage is that the only reason it works is because you're taught two things are eternally tied together. And so they have to transform in order to make it work. And so I think what you're laying out here is the power of roles and why it's important to play a role because the better you play the role, the better an experience you have and the richer your existence. And that seems to be what Hermione's good at. This is why we're so bad at defining her because she's not, good at just a certain skill set she's good at embodying the appropriate role to the situation right as student top as a dancer or a person who gets asked out to go to ball top as giver of gifts to friends top as giver of help to friends top you know um because we've seen the gifts she gives to harry as we've also seen her work for not only the house elf liberation front but also for hagrid and for buckbeak what she mm -hmm. does plays roles well. And so what I think you see is maximal transformation and maximal embodiment of virtue by her precisely because those roles exist mm. for someone to play as well as possible in order to bring into existence as many good things as possible. Um, and I think that's mm. what she does much better than these boys here. And I think that's what makes you and probably me and uh, maybe Wes too upset at, at them because they don't, rise up they don't embody the role they don't bring anything good into existence in fact ron's just making fights everywhere and the only reason harry doesn't tell him he's completely wrong is that he's been enjoying having him back as a friend um but i totally agree that they fail to embody those roles and that 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 they're really missing out because of that i found it really interesting how ron sort of shows how to go too far the other direction too. Like when he, um, <laughs> he runs across floor as she's like putting the mojo on someone else, right? And it like whaps him and he just like blurts out that he wants to go to the dance with her. And it, it, so it's like, he's got the idea. He just can't, you know, do it um, in a different way than, than uh, Harry with, um, you know, the person he actually would like to go with, you know, and he waits too long. With Ron, it's like, he asks, uh, but it's just at, at the complete wrong time and the complete wrong person, right? It's not the person that he, he truly would like to go with. So there's that. The first stabs, yeah. Um, which, again, you know, really, to me, endears him to me more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> but, but also there's, uh, there's Hagrid and Madame Maxime in the Rose Garden. Yeah. That I think is another interesting way of seeing how you can overshoot you know as well like Hagrid shares a little too much a little too soon and uh and it, it goes badly for him there um and uh you know again this was another moment where I was like feeling a lot of anxiety as I read because I was like this is so uncomfortable uh to to overhear you know because Hagrid is just one of my favorite characters and he's just he's just messing up so bad right there um and and yet it's so heartfelt you know and uh and he completely misreads, you know, how, how Maxine is going to react. Um, so, so I think, you know, it's interesting how we're shown all these different ways. Very instructive for, for young men reading this book, right? Um, all the different ways <laughs> you can do this poorly, right? And how it's supposed to work by, by, uh, by inference. And so I guess it's, uh, I think what is it, the Hufflepuff cap captain or the Rav Ravenclaw captain who gives us the best idea, right? Just fall, just do exactly, be charmed by Fleur and do exactly as she says, and you'll end up in that rose bush later. Go on, Sarah. <laughs> I was just going to say, um, I was going to say, I feel, I don't know that you're given a lot of good, like, how-to tips 
but from like inferring the absent by like by absence well if you don't do this and don't do that maybe you'll find your way um but i i think one thing that struck me as interesting in the in the garden with um hagrid and um madame maxine um is is it maxine with an m or maxine with an n i don't know but i think maxine with an m yes. um as in as in monstrously large um, right. <laughs> um is um you know i think that we were talking about this maybe a, a, a couple pods ago when uh Bobaton was uh, introduced that um uh like um like all of the other schools the names are kind of a fusion of these two words um and um Durmstrang was sort of like one one extreme like hyper masculine um and you know uh uh austere in, in its um living quarters and living in the water and uh Bobaton was sort of a little bit more feminine um very uh flourished and comfortable and um almost grandiose in its in its living quarters and and that um Hogwarts was sort of like maybe the middle course rewarded for having a second by having a second champion champion as like the winner of the anyway um but one of the things that we talked about was that um it's interesting that Bobatons has so many like half or mixed breed students right like Fleur is right. part Vila and its head headmistress is maybe part giant but what's interesting is um like how she is so resistant to that like to accepting that kind of difference in somebody else like she's offended by it right um That's uh, so good. and and that like um like almost as if she can't admit where she comes from um so she just you know maybe covers it in like black satin or maybe um like a, manipulates the affections of hagrid to get information about the tournament like uses her difference or her even like her identity to to get things out of people as opposed to like owning who you are and at least in the Rita Skeeter Rita Skeeter chapter there's a quote where Hagrid or Hagrid says like I am who I am right and um that seems to be like a really important part of a like courage and be also like transformation in the healthy way um like growing into a better version of yourself as opposed to pretending to be somebody that you're not um which i just was really struck by the fact that that she is so resistant to to this thing where when in, initially we thought that they might be the house that's more like far more liberal minded um than, well, and I wanted to, uh, than Durmstrang or Hogwarts. I wanted to ask about that because since they are so ornate and elegant, do you think that, that they are over ornate and elegant in order to hide what they are self-conscious about in order, and that it is sort of a pathology in that respect? And that perhaps this is an English comment on, Fran on the French that they are in some way wanting, and so they make things over ornate. But back to the original point, I, I think certainly with Bobaton, that that's, you know, do you think that, you know, they are, they are touchy, 
because they are insecure and they 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 wish to look even more beautiful and to be covered in grace precisely because they they want to focus on that rather than what produces the what is the source of their insecurities well that was just my that was my question be like born of her reaction that like and i i think that that's fair especially if, if we've been considering you know Durmstrang and Bobaton as sort of kind of um, uh, poles, shall we say, and Hogwarts right. sort of in the middle, right? Um, uh, in 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 a variety of ways, right? In a in the degree to which it um, accepts different kinds of people. I mean, Hogwarts accepts a lot of different kinds of people, but clearly there is still this this um, faction within the Hogwarts um, uh, student body that would like a more pure um, student body, right? Like the, the, the continual references to mudblood. Like, so um, Hogwarts is like leaning into kind of the, the mess or the chaos of like all the things that people truly are. Whereas um, the impulse towards purity or covering up impurity and pretending like that is, um, uh, uh, pretending like it's, uh, acceptance when in reality it's it's not even really tolerance it's like faux tolerance provided you don't really fly your flag right it's covering um, it up it's hiding it like curing it yeah or or using it when it's helpful but ah. not 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 owning it right so like ah so now that is so sophisticated Sarah like Fleur Fleur turns on her villa nest when she wants. Um, right. when she wants the, the best date, when she wants to bewitch whomever, right? Or um, uh, Madame Maxine, like, uh, I mean, if I'm Hagrid, I think that woman's into me, right? Like, like she kind of leads him on. Um, and, you know, uh, I think, like, those two ways of dealing with what they're calling impurity, but we'll just call... Um, diversity, right? Like either eliminating diversity altogether or making it only like the thing that you trot out as like a means to an end, but not like a reflection of like the beauty of creation, like accepting it, loving it, embracing it, leaning into it and all of the things that it means, all of the complexity, the difficulty, the conflict, the mess, the tension that diversity can create. Like, like the world is diverse. The created world is diverse. And um, to pretend it is otherwise is to like, is to deny something either to like to try to purify and make everything uniform or to just like hide the, the brokenness and the, and like the imperfections or not imperfections is the wrong word, but things that are different and pretend like they're not there. Neither of those two things are successful strategies, right? Um, it is, yeah, and it's amazing to what extent you put your your finger on the button that true diversity comes from recognizing one's own flaws or that which cause one, causes one self-consciousness, like Victor Crumb noticing that he has rounded shoulders is uh, probably something important for him to understand with posture coming on later, but that uh, true diversity doesn't come from fascistically uh, all doing, hiding 
hiding oneself in the same way in order to embody the same type. I won't, I won't even say ideal in order to become the same thing, but in rather mm-hmm. each person. And, you know, I just ta- taught the sphere of Mercury for, for Dante. And one of the points made by Justinian is that, you know, the beauty of heaven is augmented by the diversity of notes within it, just like the diversity of notes within a song adds to the beauty of a song. Um, so, you know, true diversity, uh, which recognizes the reality of the diversities between people is the most beautiful thing that exists because that is, you know, the, the work of either nature or God, depending on which angle you want to come from, but equally beautiful in both conceptions. And that to hide what one actually is, is actually a very, I would say, uh, unchristian and unphilosophically sort of sound thing to do, um, and also unsocial thing to do. It's a, precisely because, and, or just to add to that, uh, because these people are also being unethical about using the gifts that they have, but also trying to have it both ways and that they want to use the gifts uh, from the sides of them that they take shame in, but they also want to not have that shame as well. So they're, they're two-faced in a way, which is literally what they right. are, right? And, and I just, I think it's interesting because alongside that you have Hermione for whom like, you know, she fixes her teeth and she straightens her hair or, um, Harry works on, you know, self-development by learning this charm that's going to, well, save his life. Or, um, you know, to me, um, I think, and I think I recognize sometimes that we put teenagers like in a real, in like a, we put a lot of pressure on them, right? We say like, accept who you are, but be a better version of yourself or, um, you know, uh, figure it out, but ask for help. Um, all of these things, like these paradoxes that we expect them to navigate, on the one hand, it is really valuable that they learn to navigate the world for themselves and like safe environments where failure can be instructive and stuff like that. But, you know, there are a ton of like conflicting messages, like, and, and maybe that's something that Harry and Ron stumble with at the ball, that like, you have to lean into transformation, but that's not the same as like, or like personal growth. Um, But that's not the same as like casting aside parts of yourself who that you're afraid other people won't like. And that's not the same as like just conforming, right? Every teenager desperately wants to fit in, but they desperately want to stand out. So where do they fit? Where do they stand? How do you know, how does that affect their, um, their social um, interactions? I mean, it's all they think about. (laughs) And all they are not thinking about subconsciously that's affecting their decisions. Um, uh, and I, we all see it every day, right? Like how this affects them. I, I just, I think, I think it's interesting, like how the, those two houses handle different, how Hogwarts handles different and like how we're, it's really hard to articulate a roadmap for growth that also acknowledges the the virtue of and the beauty of and the importance of imperfection but also perfecting oneself or 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 like moving towards something better while also like appreciating the things that are not 
like not the superlative about you, you know? Right. Self, you know, the things that cause one to be self-conscious. Yeah, Wes. Oh, I was thinking with respect to this about the, uh, the ways that Hermione um, doesn't spell this out for Ron and Harry, right? She just sort of displays it and lets them observe it. Uh, and I think that is probably ultimately a much more effective way of teaching them. They probably weren't going to be able to accept it if she had just sort of tried to break it down, articulate it, say it to them. They had to sort of go through this. Um, I, I think it's interesting, though, that she does do it in a way with uh, her work with the house elves, right? And um, and as she says, Professor Binns is mm. there telling them about this with the goblins. Like every day in history class, they should be hearing how important diversity is and um, have respect for other beings if they were actually listening to the uh, the terrifying abilities of these goblins and their rebellions over the years. But alas, they are yeah too busy worrying about other stuff during history of magic. And uh, yeah, I can totally when I can, <laughs> I can totally relate. Okay. When okay. Uh, when she mentioned Professor Binns, I immediately thought of you, Wes. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Im I, immediately. Okay, so. So we're starting, to, we're starting to run towards that time. And so I have our magical question of the week for you too, if you're ready for it. Which magical ability, or excuse me, which New Year's resolution regarding restricting your use of magic would you fail on first? What? I think if I were to restrict myself as far as using magic to um, to transport myself and other things, I would break that most quickly. Um, that is obvious. So, okay. Yeah. So your resolution would be, I want to use magic less to do, here, I'll give a form just so that we yeah. all understand what I'm asking. Um, my resolution would be not to use magic to grade my students' essays. And I would give up on that resolution the first day of school. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess I could see, I guess I don't see the virtue maybe of, yeah, not using magic to travel. So I'll have to think about that some more. Um, I think the virtue is in restraint, not, yeah. not the thing that's being restrained. But uh, uh, that's what the argument is. Yeah, well, Alex, I'm bad at New Year's Alex I, I don't know. I don't know. This is a tricky one. Um, you kind of took mine. I would definitely break that. I've been using like that one. The, yeah, I feel like on that one. Um, maybe, uh, maybe I made a New Year's resolution to um, cook more food um, like healthily and for myself rather than like and that's real that by the way is a primary world resolution not just in harry potter world but like to eat out less um and if if i were in the magical world maybe my resolution would be like um you know better ingredients shall we say and i think i could break that one pretty quickly though i'm really fascinated in learning how cooking works in the magical world. I don't understand it. And I'm, I'd be interested to hear. 
it's amazing all the things they don't know about that you would think they would have to, but yeah. I think mainly you look down at your plate and you shout pork chops or right. <laughs> superior pork chops or whatever it is you want. All right. And so, Wes, do you, do you have any sort of resolution to use magic for, for something less than you usually do or, or travel? <laughs> maybe, maybe again, like to, um, to be faster at like getting back to people about things. Like if I were to use magic in some way to, uh, to keep myself on a better schedule with like keeping in touch with people, I, again, would just like revert to reading books and sitting around and, <laughs> and just doing things that were, were immediate, I think, rather than doing that hard work of like reaching out to people and, and keeping in touch with them, so. Maybe yeah. Put put your remember all in the desk for a little while then. Leave that leave that away. Got to do it by your own by your own merits now. No neveling with it. <laughs> all right. So, all right y'all. That was a lot. So Till next. So what's next? Oh yes. So we got to 23. Let's take a look at this because we got a pretty long book in our hands and a pretty long book ahead of us, which I'm very eager to get to. Um, not to, you know, trade the present for the future too much, but well, 24-25. Okay, very good. Getting up through the second task. Um, what were you thinking, Sarah? I was just going to say, I think we should at least get through the second task. Okay. Yeah. Wes? That sounds doable. Sweet. Okay, Rita Skeeter's scoop, the egg, and the eye, and the second task. I'm looking forward to reading this and talking it through with y'all. All right. Take it easy. All right. Take it easy. Have a good night, fellas. Good night. <laughs>